0: Well, church, um, when Steve told me he was going to be gone and asked me to preach for him, I struggled a little bit on on where to go in the text. I normally preach, when I do preach, I like to preach through a book of the Bible consecutively. And I thought, well, James, but it's been a while since we've been there. And uh, according to what's going on today in our society and culture, I thought I might be in a psalm instead of James. And so before we actually get to the text, though, I want to exercise your mind's eye. That is, I want to exercise your imagination, and I want to take you on a journey with me. So imagine with me, if you will, that immediately you find yourself standing in the middle of a field covered by ash and smoke. All around you, you hear the ear-piercing sounds of women and children crying while others lay lifeless. The stench is so foul, you almost throw up. You try to run away to get away from the nightmare, and you come upon somebody who's solemnly picking through the rubble. And when you ask him what happened, he sternly replies, don't you know he stares at you for a moment and casually says you're not from here are you well it's like this the ruler in the east finally launched his missiles farther than most ever thought he would and just north of that another ruler brought down the entire digital infrastructure after that a virus spread across the globe and crumbled infrastructure societies economies and then every ruler and nation came against each other in constant battle for power and glory They all wanted to rule the world. They all wanted to be king. What you see here in this heaping pile of rubble, smoke, and ash is all that is left. You then ask him for his name and inquire as to what he's looking for. He boastfully replies, and you can tell you're not from around here. Why, my name is Conceit, and I'm looking for my companion, Vanity, and his close relative, Apathy. You see, once I find them, nothing else will matter because I will be the most important thing again. I will have all I need. No worries about others. No worries about anything but me. You try to reason with him and tell him that what he's digging through is just rubble and trash, but he lashes out at you with a stinging tongue and sends you on your way. And as you go walking about, you see a large cross upon a hill. Not so far off and stretched out upon the cross is a dead man, bloodied and battered. Your heart begins to ache within you as you gaze upon the man hung there, and suddenly ear-piercing screams of despair and cries of torment arise on the horizon. Immediately you see strangers crying out in agony, if only we had known, if only we had heard, if only someone would have told us, if only we didn't love the world so much we would be with him in his glory and eternal peace and rest. You ask these strangers of whom they speak, and begrudgingly they exclaim, The King, the King of Kings, has come, and his wrath abides on anyone and everyone who does not he know. If only we would have heeded the warnings. If only. There were so many warnings. Why didn't we listen? And suddenly you see your father, and in his hand is a rod of iron, and he says, Child, I call you now. Come with me and walk a while. Father, you say, what has happened here? Why is this land desolate, and why do these strangers cry out in agony? And his soft yet reflective response cuts you deep. These here, you see, are the peoples of the nations, the rulers, the kings. These are the people who loved conceit, vanity, and apathy, who for so long foolishly stood against the highly exalted and anointed one and against his people. I have been established by the Father upon the hill they call Zion, and lest these that are left heed the warning. Such will be all those who do not take refuge in the Son, because Christ is King forever. So my child, heed the warning and repent before it's too late. And then he disappears. Church, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask now through stammering lips and humility that You would be high and lifted up today, Lord, and that all the words that proceed from my mouth, Lord, would be anointed by you, that they would do only to your glory and honor, Father, that they would help us understand more the situation we find ourselves in in these times and these days. But God, more importantly than that, I ask now that you would convict the hearts of your people, that you would fill us full of truth and righteousness in your spirit, Lord, that we would see the importance of sharing Christ the King, the Lord of Lords, and the Savior with the ends of the earth. Father, for there is a time coming that your wrath will abide on many. And Lord, I ask now that you would give me clarity of thought and wisdom. Lord, that you would give us all clarity of thought and wisdom. That you would add the blessing to the reading and preaching and teaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles with me this morning, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be reading Psalm 2. It's not very long, just 12 verses. So if you turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 2, and if you are able, please stand as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord. Psalm 2. Those of you watching online, if you don't have your Bibles with you, it should be on the screen for you. It reads, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So just by way of a little bit of explanation, this psalm was more than likely written as the introduction to the Psalter. That's that fancy word we use for the book of Psalms and it rides directly on the back of Psalm 1. What I mean is that Psalm 1 starts this book by comparing the blessed man to the wicked man, the man who follows God and delights in his law, and the man who hates God and is destined for eternal hell. Psalm 2 comes right behind and capitalizes on that particular aspect, but now broadening the focal point by looking not only at individuals, but entire nations, entire peoples, It looks at kings and rulers. It looks at societies and cultures. And in fact, Psalm 2 is set up with what we would call four poetic scenes. Human rebellion, divine uh, divine response, divine rule, and human responsibility. And that's how we're going to tackle it this morning. And here in Psalm Psalm 2, verse 1, the word uproar means a tumultuous rage. It's like a hurricane of rage. The nations are making this, this loud, unruly, and uncontrolled anger toward God and His people. At the same time, people are devising fa- uh, vanity and chasing after vanity. Solomon calls that chasing after the wind in Ecclesiastes. You ever tried to chase the wind? You never catch it. Basically, the psalmist is saying that it's a pointless endeavor. Pointless. The people, are, they're pondering, they're scheming, they're devising utter emptiness It's similar to using a rocking chair to get yourself somewhere. It's not going to do you any good. It's pointless. Some might even say madness. And here you have the nations of peoples in this hurricane-like rage, not only against God, but against his people. They literally station themselves up as in military formation against God and against his anointed. And the psalmist says they wish to break apart the believer's fetters or bonds. If you're not familiar, a fetter is an old term referring to chains or or like manacles, something to keep you restrained, right? And so think of it this way. The believer in Christ is chained literally to Jesus, or we should be if we're not. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. Not only are we fettered to Christ as believers, but we're also bound to him with cords. And then nations of unbelievers seek to rip out or rip those cords out and cast them away. They hope to cut us off from the Lord Jesus Christ. And they want to break or shatter the fetters that are keeping us connected to God through Jesus. And though they may try, it's in vain as we're going to see in a moment. Now, I know I don't have to tell you this because most of us, or most of it is obvious, but just in case there are some that might not be aware of how the nations are raging against God and his people or the depravity of human rebellion, let's take a look at the world for a moment. Millions of children are murdered every year through the greatest evil of our time and the most wicked organization known to history. Homosexuality is on the rise, with the LGBTQ plus mafia tearing into every fabric of society. The family unit destroyed. Morality destroyed. Which at one time was actually cherished and honored. One time. People's rights are ignored or erased if you decide to take a stand for God in your faith. Don't want to bake a cake? Shut down. Don't want to prepare flowers? Shut down. Want to open your church after Caesar said not to? Shut down. Think about it. Our politicians not only advocate and legislate wicked and perverse behavior, but they also give hearty approval to those that participate in it. Don't think it's true? Look at some of the curriculum they've introduced in California schools very mature sexual content for kids as young as elementary school. They just introduced another law that says that children, children, not grown-ups, not teenagers, children don't need their parents' approval if they want to go kill their baby. Parents don't even have to know about it. And this brings me to the first thing I want us to see here in this psalm that the psalmist is talking about and the level of human rebellion. Human rebellion. And if you're like me... You probably carry a cell phone or some sort of mobile device. You can't really get through the world today without. And every so often, what will it do? It'll chirp. Breaking news story. Here's this. Text message, email, breaking news story. And some of these stories, if you look at them depict the very real evil that takes place in our broken world. It's in our face. If you look at scripture, you'll see that it wasn't much different. It's just they didn't have media shoving it in their face all the time. If you wanted to get a message from one part of the world to the other, you wrote a letter, you didn't even have snail mail. You had to have somebody carry it along. Took a while. It's different now. Other stories depict the very vain or foolish things people do for notoriety and prestige. Sometimes it can even be tough to weed through the immense amount of junk in the media, but if you keep a keen eye, you can see how there's human rebellion everywhere. The nations rage against God and how people are constantly chasing vanity. And if you kept up with the news lately, you've seen that Nigeria Christians are systematically slaughtered just because they call upon the name of Jesus. It's as if they hunt them down and exterminate them. Nobody does that when you believe in unicorns or fairies. It's because Jesus is real. In China, I hope they don't ban me, churches are constantly raided, congregation members are dragged out, they're beaten, then they're jailed indefinitely or killed. Even worse, China has just told Christians in its country, stop worshiping God, worship the president of China. They have gone so far as to erase or cut out Genesis and Revelation out of the Bible. Do you know why? Genesis, the beginning of morality, the beginning of creation, the beginning of you have value in the eyes of the Lord just because he created you, and Revelation, the hope to come. You get rid of the beginning, you get rid of the hope, and you can manipulate an entire people. This human rebellion against God and against his anointed has been going on for a long time, though. I mean, we've all read our Bibles, we know, and it'll continue to go on until Christ returns. Now, I mentioned Richard Wormbrand a lot, because he's one of the people I like to follow, but in his book, Tortured for Christ, if you haven't seen it or read it, I suggest you do. He tells about a time he was strung up, on a pole, horizontal pole, at his back of his knees with his feet straight forward and his hands tied there. And a guard was just beating his feet with a rod. And he looked at the guard and said, do you not have any pity in your heart? And you know what the guard's response was? I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour so that I can express all the evil in my heart. Is that not nations raging against God's anointed? Is that not human rebellion on the first degree? I think that's the worst one. Paul Washer, another prominent preacher that I listened to, said this. People, when left to themselves, all have the potential to be Hitler. I know that might sting a little bit, but it's the truth. Without God, we would pick evil. Take a look at Venezuela. The people of Venezuela, they're starving. They're literally picking through trash for food and scraps just to feed their family. The Venezuelan economy has crumbled and their dictator kills the very people he was supposed to be leading. Is that not the nations raging against God? Is that not pure human rebellion? Furthermore, you all probably aware that uh, we're in the middle of what some would call a pandemic right now. Many states have shut down again, California being one of them. They've told churches to shut down indefinitely. When these churches... Based on biblical commandments to serve God and not Caesar, refused to comply, they were threatened. If they did not comply, the government would shut down their water, shut down their electric, and at least made the threat to do so. Some might say, well, Pastor Josh, it's to save lives. If it's to save lives, why have we not shut down Planned Parenthood, where over half a million children are killed every year? If it's to save lives, why are cigarette cells still allowed to kill 480,000 people a year? If it's to save lives, why are the bars and alcohol deemed essential when it's responsible for some 88,000 deaths annually? If it's to save lives, why do these same people not fight with all the resources they have to end child exploitation and human trafficking? Church, the bottom line is that Caesar is overstepping his divine authority and he's trying to meddle in the affairs of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And history is shown repeatedly as clear as this psalm says it, this is yet another means used by the God of this world to try to cut off the bride from Christ. Is this not kings and rulers attempting to tear apart the fetters of those who believe in Jesus? How about people constantly devising vanity or chasing vanity? Consider for a moment that the logo from just about everybody's favorite product is a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it, and everything they make begins with the letter I. How much more me-centered can we get? Now hear me, church, I'm not saying that if you use one of these products, you struggle with idolatry, I'm using it as an illustration, because as human sinners, we have the potential to worship anything, it don't matter what it is, but what I am saying is that people chase vanity in just about everything, if it's not a piece of technology, it's social media followings, why? They want popularity, they want prestige, they want power, and they want influence, I mean, I don't have to mention the four main companies that run the world, but if I did, they'd shut me down on social media because if you say anything they don't like, you disappear digitally. The next generation is growing up in a world where the nations are constantly raging against God's people and at the same time, people are up to their arms in idolatry. They're growing up with a world filled with selfie gods posted to Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and YouTube and on and on and TikTok and all the things. These kids are engaging in foolishness on social media that can get them or somebody else very badly injured and has before. Years ago, I don't know if you followed it, but years ago they were eating Tide laundry pods, packs of laundry detergent, Then it was drinking, scolding hot water. If it's not a social media challenge that could get them hurt, or others hurt, it's a constant chasing of the BBD, right? Bigger, better deal. Anything bigger and better than church. It's BBD in work, in relationships, in athletics, in academics, in life. Anything that's bigger, better, and more entertaining than the boring old church. Is that not chasing vanity? Worse than that, now it's, let's defund the police. Let's get rid of law and order so that we can do whatever we want, wherever we want, to whoever we want. What do your politicians do? Advocate. It's chop stations across the nation. It's blatant anarchy in the streets, and if you disagree with me, I'll force you to comply using Caesar's government. Is this not the nations raging against God and his anointed, devising vanity? It's straight up human rebellion on a large scale. And the psalmist is just talking about this. And so I ask you, who's reigning on the hill of your heart? Is it the king of kings and the lord of lords? Or is it a piece of technology? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's even a bank account got fat stacks, I'm all right. Don't have Jesus. Perhaps it's a relationship that's got you thinking, maybe, just maybe, this time it'll work out and I'll be happy. Maybe he won't hit me again. Maybe she won't leave again. Church, there's a very real tangible and in-your-face kind of evil in this world, and the only hope we have in this world is God. The only hope we have in this world is God. The only hope that we have, is the almighty King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. But are you living that way? Are we living that way as Christians? Do people know where our ultimate hope lays, even in the rebellion and frustration of the world? I don't know if y'all are aware of this, and I know most of us um, work and go various places, but every Tuesday morning... We have a countywide prayer service right here at 8 o'clock in the sanctuary. And I've only been coming now for almost two years, but the, the prayer is always the same. We pray for the Spirit of God to fall upon heaven, on his people, and bring back a heaven-sent spiritual revival and awakening, not only in our country, but the world. If it's his will that this is going to keep going down, that's fine. God is sovereign. He's good. But we still pray. We still make petition. Because in a world wrought to the core with wicked and evil people, and in a world where the nations are constantly raging against God and his anointed, and in a world where idolatry and foolishness run rampant, where human rebellion is just flooded in the streets, our only hope is God. It was always God, it is still God, and it will continue to always only be God. So if you're sitting there going, well, gosh, Josh, I'm trying, I, I do rely on God, I pray to God regularly, and I seek to do his will. I'm careful not to elevate the world over Christ in my life. I make sure he's preeminent in my life. That is, he's first. Good. Let this be an encouragement to you that no matter what happens, Christ is king. That no matter what happens, you continue to pray. Continue seeking his face. Guard yourself from vain things, and do not lose heart when the nations rage against God or his people. Don't lose your first love. Supreme Savior of your soul. But maybe you're sitting there saying, well, Pastor, that was offensive, and I do not worship those things, and how dare you? I would just caution you not to mistake conviction for offense. This is an easy thing to do. I'll give you an example. You ever argue with your spouse? Nah, I didn't think so. Just me? (laughs) No. They might say something that cuts you deep, right, with conviction, but because you're in the wrong and you want to be prideful, you spend your whole day going, how dare they? I can't believe they said that to me. And then if you're like me, eventually God's like, okay, well, clearly you're not going to get this, so let me help out. Wham! And you go, now it makes sense. Now I get it. Conviction can easily be misunderstood as offense because it hurts sometimes. It does. But we need to humble ourselves, put away foolishness, put away vain things and seek the face of God because if not, there is coming a time, if not already here, where you will have to choose God or Caesar. And so again, let me remind you not to lose heart. Nothing that the raging nations will do will change who you are in Christ nothing. In fact, Jesus says, and I love this, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's worthy of our reverence. Nobody else is. Certainly not Caesar. The second thing I want us to see from this psalm is the divine response to the human rebellion. Look with me again at verses 4 and 5. Or 4 through 6, I'm sorry. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, we just talked about how these nations rage against God constantly and his people, and how the people chase vanity. Basically, human rebellion. Do you find it interesting that God's response to this is laughter? Think about that for a moment nations rise up against god and against his anointed and they try as hard as they can to shatter the fetters the things that keep us tied to jesus they try everything they can they try to shut down churches they drag out congregation members and kill them they force compliance with anti-god practices and threaten anyone who does not submit they try to do anything and everything to defy the lord day in and day out they shut businesses and make all manner of threats but the lord he who sits in the heavens, he laughs at them. He scoffs at them. God mocks them for their vile contempt against him. He terrifies them in his fury. The word fury means a fierce, burning anger. If you want a hint of what this looks like, let me read to you real quick from Psalm 78. You don't have to turn there. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble. A band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. Have you ever gave thought to that notion? God terrifies them in his fury. Not only does that, but God says very clearly, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's already won. God's already set up his king, and his dominion has no end and cannot be overthrown, no matter what people do to you or anybody else. Christ will reign forever and ever for all eternity, and that's a joyous thing if you get to spend it with him. I want you to think back to a few moments ago when we were walking along in that imaginary land. Everything was burning. People were crying out in agony. The land was laid waste. You see, this will be the destination to all who die in Adam. Let me explain what I mean. That is, anyone who dies without putting their faith in Christ, in Christ alone, for salvation. This thought should cause us as Christians agony. You know why? 150,000 people die every 24 hours. That's 104 every minute, two almost every second as we sit here. Every day, thousands of people are headed for eternity, and those without Christ, the devil's hell. So what's the application for our lives? What should we do in response to God's divine response to these nations raging against him and chasing vanity? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Steve has been taking us through how to be a good neighbor, right, the last few weeks. And the most loving thing we could ever do for somebody is to snatch them out of the fiery pit by sharing the gospel. God says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not your works. Not anything you can, any lofty argument you, you bring to somebody. It's the gospel, the conviction that we are sinners doomed for the wrath, but that God made a way of escape through Jesus Christ for anybody that would turn away from their sin and put their faith in Christ and Christ alone and serve him all their days. That's the gospel. And you say, well, Pastor Josh, I don't like those people. They're mean. Pastor, you just said there's the same people killing Christians, shutting down churches, and persecuting believers all over the world. And you want me to share the gospel with them? Yes. Yes, I do. I'll take it a step further. I want you to pray for them. Because the more you pray for somebody, the easier it is to not hate them. I shouldn't have used the double negative. I'm sorry. The more you pray for somebody, the easier it is to love them as Jesus loves them. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs about this. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. If you haven't read Torture for Christ, I suggest you do, but the whole time Richard, pastor, was in prison being beat, he was praying for the guards. And he tells of how many actually came to faith in Christ because of that prayer, constant prayer. See, this goes hand in hand with loving your neighbor. I use this illustration with my kids and a lot of other people. If you see somebody who's blind walking to the edge of a cliff, do you stop them? No matter if they get mad at you or not? Do you stop them if they don't like you? I I want them to think I'm a good friend. I don't want to upset them. They're getting ready to go over a cliff and die. In the same way, lost people in this world are blind by the God of this world, and if we don't grab them by the ankles and say, hey, stop! You're going to go over the cliff! Regardless of how they think about us, we're doing them a great disservice, and we cannot say that we love them. (laughs) Church, I know that there are clear battle lines drawn in this world. I know that the tensions are high, and I know that People are very set in what they're going to do and say, but have you ever stopped, really stopped, not a generalized God help them, but a very specific prayer for that individual? Just one. Two if you can. If you think about it, God's already said that they can rage all they want, but he's already set up his king, the King Jesus, for all eternity. This means that whoever does not repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation will be destined for the devil's hell and have God's wrath poured out on them for eternity. That is not good, church. Besides, none of these people, and hear me on this, none of these people will ever do worse to you or I than we have already done to Jesus Christ. So we looked at human rebellion, divine response, and the third thing we need to see from this psalm is divine rule. Verses 7 and 8 are used here in the New Testament to affirm Christ's birth in Acts 13 and Hebrews 1.5 and 5.5, and it speaks directly of the Messianic Savior, even though David wrote this psalm, and the privileges or relationship with prophetic applications of son. Sons get an inheritance, children get an inheritance. The nations and the ends of the earth are the inheritance that Christ receives. God's very clear in that. Verse 9 is where we see God speaking to them in his anger and terrifying them in his fury. Verse 9 essentially reminds those that are in rebellion against God what his king will do. He will rule with the shepherd's rod and the king's scepter. Here we see Christ, the only mediator between God and man, receiving the nations as an inheritance and breaking those in rebellion against him with his rod of iron and shattering them like earthenware. And here's the point the text is making here in these verses. Basically, like God said, As for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's put his king in charge. There will come a time when those that rebel him will be shattered like clay pots. Church, that ought to scare us. If we believe the word of God is true, and there is a hell, that ought to scare us into sharing, if anything. We ought to have a deep love and conviction for those that are lost. In all their might, in all their rebellion, and hate from God, they station themselves against him and try to fight. These people think they have cast away the believer's cords and set themselves up as kings, but God says... Oh, no, no, no. I've already installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's already accomplished. His, He will rule in king as a king and chastise with the rod. And this is why the Lord scoffs at them previously, because try as they might, nothing they will do will nullify or cancel the fact that God's already installed Jesus forever. Christ is a supreme ruler and Savior. And so the application is this. If God has already set up his king with the scepter and rod, our response should mirror that of Paul's when he was in prison writing Philippians. What did he say? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Die is gain, because you get to be with Jesus. To live your life should reflect the Savior live your life in selfless, humble service to your King Jesus. Don't worship Caesar no matter what happens, no matter the threats or persecution, because earthly kings are but for a moment, a drop in the bucket of eternity. The King Jesus is forever, and he's already been installed as the King of Kings. There is nothing anyone can do to change that. Nothing. Try as they might. And I say this a lot, and I feel like it should be repeated now, but Some people treat the Christian life like a doctor's appointment, sitting in the lobby reading crappy magazines waiting for the great physician to come and get them for their divine appointment. Others treat the Christian life like a battlefield clad in the full armor of God charging the enemy ranks for their mighty Savior. Standing firm, standing fast, and standing in bold opposition to Caesar. Which one will you be? Church, the last thing I want us to see from this psalm is human responsibility. There's a very serious warning all throughout Scripture, and God tells us very clearly His expectation of us, and He expects us to respond in the way that we should. And so first, we talked about human rebellion. That's the nations raging against God, against His people, while they simultaneously chase vanity and devise vain things. Then there's God's divine response. Essentially, God laughs at them in derision; He mocks them for their hatred toward Him. Then there is divine rule that comes through the Son, Jesus Christ. The last thing is human responsibility. Look real quick again with me at the text. We're going to read chapter, or excuse me, verses ten through twelve. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice. With trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. These verses give what I call five preemptive warnings, five prescriptive things that we should do in order to comply with what Christ is telling us here. One is show discernment. Two, take warning, three, worship with reverence, rejoice with trembling, and do homage to the Son. You say, well, what is the reason for giving these warnings? To say it in the most basic way, so that he does not become angry and we perish in the way. His wrath will soon be kindled. And so real quick, I just want to take a look at each one of these warnings. First, discernment. What is discernment? It's not merely having a head full of knowledge, right? Although that's helpful in some capacity, but it's rather the act or process of exhibiting keen insight and good judgment. Good judgment, that's discernment. The second one was take warning. You know what this looks like? I'm sure everybody does if you've got kids or had kids at one point in time. Don't do that or else. And then they do it, and then they're upset or surprised when they get in trouble. Like what? Like, I literally just gave you a warning. Why would you do that? And God was like, mm-hmm. That's what that looks like. Maybe that's what God's saying to the world right now. Perhaps he's giving us a warning right now. I don't know. The third thing was worship with reverence. Church, just doesn't mean to be afraid of God. Rather, realize that he is God. He is almighty, holy, perfect, and righteous, just, and many other adjectives. The supreme being who created the entirety of the wonderful and abundant universe gave his life on the cross so that we, the sinners, the mutinous people that he created, could have forgiveness. We should hold him in the highest regard. The highest regard. Nobody else, nothing else. Jesus Christ. We should enter his presence with shuddering. Revelation 4.11 sums it up pretty well. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. God just spoke and created. But when he created humans, he formed them. He got personal. It wasn't just words coming out. We ought to hold him in the highest regard. And you see, these are the thoughts that should drive our worship every Sunday or any other time whenever we're worshiping the Lord. doesn't have to be here at church. You can worship God anywhere as long as it's in spirit and truth. These thoughts should drive our worship. Not wondering how long the song is. Or where are we going to eat after service. Or gosh, I wish pastor would just get on with it already. Right? And then the fourth thing was rejoice with trembling. This literally means to joyfully shudder. God. It's a mentality of, oh my God and my Lord. And the fifth thing, do homage to the Son. The King James Version says, kiss the Son. Right? All throughout Scripture. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Essentially. We're supposed to show special honor or respect to Christ, hear me, privately and publicly. And publicly. It means if we claim to be Christians, we certainly need to act like it in the public square and in private, don't we? Because nobody sees a mean, nasty Christian in the public square and goes, gosh, I want to serve that God that they worship." Get cut off, start raging your fist and you dare you. Praise Jesus. It means we should stand for what is right and denounce what is wrong, no matter what. No matter what, Church. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter if my feelings are hurt. There's been plenty of things where he's been like, "It's wrong, Hernandez," and I go, "But God, He says, no, it's wrong." Okay. It means when you're out and about in your day and you see something or you hear something or you're part of a conversation even at work maybe around the water cooler and it starts leaning in an ungodly way, you should either excuse yourself or speak up and say, hey, I'm not going to engage in this kind of behavior because I'm a Christian and walk away. If you engage in it, if you have crude jesting or joking or gossiping, you're not honoring the Lord. And it's not because of your opinion. People will be like, well, that's how you feel. No, it's not my opinion. It's what Scripture says. It's what God says. That should be our response when somebody questions our motive. We think you're better than me? No, I certainly don't. In fact, I'm just as damned as you are. But Jesus Christ said, I should do this, and I'm going to do it. In short, worship Jesus, not Caesar, please. Consequently, church, the only thing I recall being told to do behind closed doors in Scripture is to pray in my inner closet. God never says to be a Sunday morning only Christian and cower to the state the other six days of the week. Let me see if I can illustrate this a bit for you. Um so back in 2014, the United Kingdom put out what we call a public service announcement, a PSA, about staying in school. Okay? They wanted people to stay in school, and so they made this commercial. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh my goodness. I think they may have taken it a bit far, and it's only 60 seconds, but they certainly get their point across. It starts off with a camera on two couples playing in the water on the shoreline. They're having a good time, water splashing, all that stuff. One female begins to run off playfully, and her boyfriend goes to follow her. She then gets blown up by an apparent landmine. Then he does. And then the other couple runs off with a boyfriend dragging his girl behind him, and he gets tired of dragging her because she's scared he lets her go, and he meets the same fate. She drops to her knees and is crying in tears. All that stuff. And then the camera zooms out very slowly and dramatically just over a small sand dune is a fence with a big sign on it that says, Warning! Stay out! Explosive testing site. So what's the warning we are receiving from God right now? Are we heeding the warning? 2020, church, (laughs) I know we can amen this. 2020 has been a very traumatic year. And thus far, we still have five months to go. I saw something the other day on social media that said, Halloween 2020, full moon, blue moon, and we set our cloths back, 2028 messing around. I thought, my goodness, I better look that up because if that's the case, I'm just I'm going to stay inside. It's been a hard year, hard year for everybody In fact, in my 36 years of life, I think this is the hardest year I've ever had to deal with. And that's saying a lot. So what is the warning God has shown you right now? Is he speaking to you about something? In that still, small voice in your heart, do you hear him speaking truth into you that you should not be doing this or you should be doing this? Church, we can't take God for granted. We can't. We must not ignore the warning he clearly gives us. We must not continue in a life of sin, lethargy, and apathy. Jesus himself said in this psalm that if the warnings are not taken seriously, his wrath will soon be kindled and people will perish in the way. He didn't say might. The Hebrew word doesn't mean might. It says will. It means it's going to happen. Let it not be us, and for God's sake, let us be pleading with other people. This is going to happen. Heed God's warnings. Do not go around them. Do not pretend you don't see them. And when you see somebody else intentionally sidestepping a very clear warning, stand up and say something, despite the consequences. Do not think to yourself or say to somebody else, oh, well, there's grace. I can continue in my sin. Go ahead and sin. Jesus loves you. Church, he does love us. If he didn't, he wouldn't have hung on that cross. But if he didn't hate sin, he wouldn't have hung on that cross. And he did. He hates sin, but he loves us. Paul said that if you have a mentality like that, God forbid we should behave that way. Just because there's grace doesn't mean we sin. Heed the warnings and plead with others to do so and take refuge in God. If people say, I don't like you, you say things I don't like. That person ain't going to judge you for eternity, who cares? If you're honoring the Lord, if you're honoring God... Chances are you're going to be loving your neighbor and you're going to be saying things that they find offensive. In fact, I read something the other day or this morning. If Jesus and the apostles were on Twitter these days or Google, they'd been shut down a long time ago. They were the most offensive people in the entire history of the universe. Who cares if people don't like you? They're not going to judge you. Jesus Christ will judge you. Verse 12 says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I love this because, and I'm not intelligent by any means, but I am in school and they do make you take Hebrew. So I am learning Hebrew. But in the Hebrew, this is not even actually a question. Like, hey man, if I follow Jesus' pastor, how blessed do you think I'll be? If I take refuge in him, will I be blessed? It's not a question. It's more of a statement. It's more of like a, hey man, do you have any idea how blessed you will be when you take refuge in God. It's not a maybe, it's a you will be blessed. Do you know that joy will come? The peace in your troubled soul will be settled. Oh my goodness, how blessed you will be. That's the mentality behind that question. You will be blessed if you take refuge in God and rest peacefully in the arms of Christ. But only when, church, there's a delimiter. Only when you put your full trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for your sin and who died for my sin. Only then can He truly be our refuge. And, church, let me finish with this. In a world that's full of human rebellion and raging nations and people constantly chasing vanity, we cannot expect change if we ourselves. Are not repentant and seeking the face of God. Okay? And how does change occur? Well, church, we can legislate all the ding dong day long, but you know what you can't legislate? A human heart. It doesn't matter how many laws you pass or change, you cannot change the human heart. Only God can do that. You know what happens? Or you know how that happens is through the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul was very clear. It is the power of God unto salvation. And what does this mean for us? Well, it is our human responsibility as the body of Christ. We need to ensure we do not recant. No matter what happens, we do not cower in fear. And that we do not back down in the face of opposition. Because church, you know well just as I do that it's coming, it's already been here, and it will be here. If you've ever read an epistle by Paul, you know there's persecution if you're a Christian. Do not back down in the face of opposition because guess what? Soon it will be knocking on our doors. It means we had better start taking God's warnings seriously, and we had better start praying and sharing the gospel, begging and pleading with people who are on their way to judgment. Scripture gives us very clear warning signs and calls us to fasten ourselves to the Son through humble repentance. Humble repentance. Else we end up under the righteous and deserved wrath of God, just as those who rebel against Him will. That is my prayer for myself, for my family, for our Midway family. And I'll just say this last thing, and then we can pray and go eat or whatever we need to do, but... Church, maybe you find yourself on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's left. Maybe it's mask or no mask. Maybe it's shut down or not shut down. Maybe it's COVID-19 or the Rona. I want you to hear me. I'm not here to chastise you either way. Scripture, if you read it enough, you'll get chastised all the same. Paul says in Romans 14 that everyone ought to be convinced in their own mind. But at the very least, let me leave you with Jesus' very poignant words. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And God owns this tip of my hair to the toe of my foot, just as he owns every one of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for a glorious and beautiful day. Lord, we know. That just the breath in our lungs and being able to wake up this morning from sleep, if we got any, I know a few of us didn't, um, Lord, is just an act of grace from you. Lord, we thank you that you are mighty and that you are forgiving and that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us and to make a way, Lord, because of our sin, that we could come back to you and that we could speak to you and pray to you and worship you in spirit and truth and revere you just as you deserve. God, I pray, Lord, that the the level of human rebellion in this world will be um, stopped by the intervention of your people sharing and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for your response and your rule, Lord, that you've already set up Christ as king forever. God, now I just pray that your spirit would humble us, that you would cause us, O Father, to be convicted of our responsibility before you to go out and to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to call sinners to repentance, Lord, to start in our families, to go to our neighbors, to go to our workplaces, God, lest your wrath be kindled and we perish in the way. Thank you for all you do for us, mighty Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Sandra,